and welcome back to GEMcast. Today, I am joined by Lauren Sutherland. Hey, Lauren. Thanks for being here. Thanks, Christina. It is so delightful to talk to you, as always. <laughs> and Lauren is emergency medicine and geriatrics trained and works at The Ohio State University. She recently published an article called Safe for Discharge, and it's all about when is someone, an older patient, safe for discharge from the ED, and how do we think about that, as well as the risks and benefits of discharge versus hospitalization. And this was in the Acute Geriatric Series in EM Australasia. And Lauren is also, for one more month, the uh, past president of the SAM's Academy of Geriatric Emergency Medicine. So Lauren, what was your motivation or interest in this topic? So this is a concept that came out of some discussions we've had among the AGEM, or Academy of Geriatric Emergency Medicine group. And Chris Carpenter invited me to expand upon it a little more and really write it down. So this is a collaboration between myself and some new colleagues out of Australia, Glenn Aarons and Carolyn Hullock, and um, Scott Pearson from New Zealand. So it was really fun hearing how their discharge process and the ability they have for transitions of care is different than here, but how we still all end up with some of the same questions. How do emergency medicine physicians do risk assessments for patients for discharge? So I think that we as EM physicians are trained to risk assess for everything. How likely is this chest pain ACS or how likely is a pulmonary embolism? But when we get to that disposition assessment, we sometimes don't understand the risks of admitting someone versus the risks of discharging someone. Hmm. For example, um, I had a patient a couple months ago. He was in his 80s with lung cancer, and he had a pneumonia. And he really wanted to go home, but this is a high-risk patient by age and his comorbidities, and his oxygen when he was walking was about 90 91%. So I couldn't definitively tell him that he was hypoxic and had to stay or needed home oxygen. So we sat down and had a conversation. What risk does bringing him into the hospital bring? And from his mindset, he is away from his family. He's away from the people he loves and the things he loves to do. Um, and he's not up and mobile as much. And he thought it would typically take him a week or two just to recover his functional status after any hospitalization. Hmm. So the risk of going home, though, was that his pneumonia could get worse. He could become hypoxic because he was kind of borderline. So how do we balance those risks? And we ended up getting uh, some community support involved. So thankfully, the EMS agency in his area have community paramedics. We were able to give them a call, and they were going to send someone out to his house the next day to recheck his oxygen level and his vitals and make sure he was doing all right or to transfer him back into the hospital if he wasn't. And everyone agreed that that was a plan that was acceptable and seemed to have less risk for the patient than sending him home without any mm -hmm. support or bringing him into the hospital. So it sounds like often in our minds, oh, just admit the patient, that's the safe thing to do because then we know somebody's watching them and somebody's checking on their oxygen level. And yet in reality, the patients may perceive that as a, as a high-risk event because they can become deconditioned or get hospital-acquired infections or things like that. 
Exactly. Even things as simple as their medications being given at different times or in different ways can really impact someone who is frail or who has a lot of comorbidities and medications and has a set system at home. So is there any data or any information about how we're trained to do risk assessments during our residency training or how well prepared EM physicians feel to do these kind of discharge risk assessments? I think historically, EM physicians have felt that discharging takes all the risk onto us. And by admitting the patient, we shove all the risk onto someone else. We did their job. I'll let the hospitalist decide when he's good to go. And that's been something that has continued in our culture and something we teach the residents. And now I don't think that's as true as it was maybe 10, 20, 30 years ago. I think many times we are giving the patient a dearth of options when we just look at just admit or discharge. Mm -hmm. And I think that this actually dovetails really well with some of the potential benefits of a value-based care system, which we can talk a little bit more about potentially. But uh, so what do you perceive as the main elements of a risk assessment for older patients when you're considering discharge? I think the first thing to do when considering discharge an older patient is to understand what you are sending them back to. Where do they live? What level of care do they have? Many residents don't understand the difference between independent living or a senior apartment versus what an assisted living or a full-skilled nursing facility can provide. And so they'll send someone back to what they think is assisted living, think they get assistance, but in reality, they may have assistance with meals or maybe transportation, but they might not have the medical assistance one would expect in a nursing facility. Why don't we actually go ahead and define those terms? Because you're right. Often we'll say, oh, they're coming from you know, Happy Meadows facility, but we don't actually know what level of care they're receiving because often they can have multiple levels of care or support in the same facility or institution. So independent living is more like, I I kind of think of it like a dorm. You know, they'll have an apartment or it could even be a standalone home um, and they'll live there mostly independently, but they'll have the option, say, to come down to the dining hall for meals. So it's it's very much like a dorm in that there's some common areas, there's a space you can go eat, but you have your own living space and you, for the most part, manage yourself on your own. Do you want to talk a little bit about the assisted living and skilled nursing levels and what they can provide? Sure. And I think your description of independent living is perfect. It's mainly for the person who is functionally independent but wants more community. They may be able to offer some transportation help to appointments or to the mm-hmm. grocery store. But in general, that person is functioning on their own. Assisted living, there are different levels of that. So it's always good to call Happy Meadows or wherever <laughs> your, your patient is from and see what exactly they can provide. Some of them can provide weekly medication checks, like filling their pill boxes or helping with some medications. Some of them have a nurse or a nurse techs on staff. And some don't. Some of them have somebody there 24 hours a day who you can talk to if you're discharging someone back to their home, and some of them don't. So it's very difficult to say exactly what the criteria are to call something assisted living. And then what about the skilled nursing facilities? A full-skilled nursing facility has 24-hour staff, and it has a nurse-to-patient ratio that could be anywhere from 1 to 5 if it's a rehabilitation place 
to 1 to 20 to 30 with some nurse assistance or techs. Mm -hmm. So again, the ability to help a patient being sent home differs depending on what level of care they're at. But in general, an extended care facility, long-term care facility, or skilled nursing facility, whichever term is used, has 24-hour support. And some of them can even do IV medications or other IVs uh, treatments, whereas others can't. So you're absolutely right. It really varies. And having a, you know, a warm handoff or a phone to person to person phone conversation with somebody, some staff member who knows that facility is really key. Especially, that's a great point because a lot of hospitalizations can be avoided if someone is at a facility that has those capabilities. If that man I mentioned earlier had lived at a nursing facility and they could have said, oh, we'll do IV antibiotics. We can have the physician or the nurse practitioner check on him tomorrow and see how he's doing. We'll monitor his vitals, bump him up from every 30-day vitals to Q daily vitals. You can basically make a hospital at home depending mm -hmm. on what the facility can provide. Yes. So what do you perceive as some of the biggest barriers to sending these patients home? And I'd be really interested to hear if your co-authors who are in Australia and New Zealand, if those countries have some solutions that, for example, we don't currently have in most places. I would say that for all three countries, we all felt that the biggest barrier was physicians not taking the time to ask. Hmm. So to safely discharge someone to home or to put someone in a program like a hospital at home or community paramedic program. It involves sitting down with the patient and their caregivers or family and asking what their status and level of care is, what their acceptability of risk is. You know, they might have a caregiver there with them in the emergency department, but that person might have to work all the next day and might not be able to be there, in which case that person might be better for an observation stay to see how things go and discharge tomorrow. But if the physician doesn't take the time to go back into the room and actually have that, and it's only a 10-minute conversation, you could very easily decide to admit someone who would be far better off avoiding a hospitalization. I think one of the other barriers is not having systems in place. So, for example, you mentioned that there was, for your patient, a paramedic program where they could visit the patient at home and check on them. If you don't have those kinds of programs in place, that's not something you can build in the moment on shift. No matter how much time you spend talking with the patient, if there aren't these systems in place to be able to make a next day appointment or have somebody follow up with them or ensure that they have somebody who can take care of them, then I think that's another major barrier. Yes, and that's something I actually have to thank the ASEPS accreditation process for. When we were going through geriatric ED accreditation, we had to really sit down and list out what community resources we have. And a colleague and I literally called every one of the 22 EMS agencies in our county to see what they could provide for patients in their area. And it was amazing to discover what was out there that we didn't know about and our community resources that were underutilized. So, if someone is looking to set up a program in their area, before you even think, oh, there's so much I have to do, you might want to look at what's already there that you're not even using. Mm. Yeah, that's a really good point. What are some newer alternatives to hospitalization, and how do you think these may change in the coming years? Well, one area we really love using for risk assessment prior to discharge is our observation unit. Our ED observation unit is run by emergency medicine physicians, 
but we frequently keep people there for a couple of extra hours to get physical therapy, occupational therapy, um, a case manager to come by and really help us dig into what resources do they have and what do they need and get everything set up before they go home. And I feel that that helps the EM provider who may feel torn between the stroke in room 12 and the GI bleed in room six and this 75 year old who's probably okay for discharge, but I didn't really do a cognitive assessment or walk them to have that multidisciplinary input. Mm, That's awesome. Now, not every place has that capability, but it is awesome when you have it. Other alternatives and other institutions do this differently. There are a lot of good studies out of Great Britain about assessment in the home. So they'll send someone home and arrange for all these assessments the next day, a physical therapist to go out to their house and really see how they're doing. And they found that that's reduced length of stay and hospitalization length of stay because instead of waiting for the physical therapy evaluation and then possible placement, the physical therapists do it in their in the patient's own home and get a much better sense of what they're capable of and their functional status. Yeah, I love that idea of the visit at home because, for example, I may look at their medication list when they're visiting in the ED, but then how they're taking their medications, how they're organized, whether they're able to really understand when and how to take them is a whole other issue. And you you can't really know that unless you're in the home and can see what's going on. Yes. And when things they may fail on in the hospital physical therapy evaluation, they may have ways where they get up and down their own set of three stairs into their house safely or to mm-hmm. the bathroom safely that are Uh, using furniture or other methods that we can't really assess as well in the hospital. Another option that's becoming popular and developing in a lot of different places is the concept of hospital at home. Do you have that at UNC? Uh, Not at this time that I know of. It's a really interesting concept. The idea is that there are a lot of simple things that we admit people for that they just end up sitting in the hospital waiting most of the time. For instance, a COPD exacerbation. We'll come in every two to three hours and give NEBS, but really you spend a lot of time without much intensive management. Mm -hmm. Or uh, congestive heart failure exacerbation, where we're giving you diuretics maybe once or twice a day IV, but other than that, you're sitting there and waiting. So instead, a hospital at home program will set up a home health nurse to come out not just once a day, but sometimes two to three times a day for the first couple of days mm. to give these medications, monitor their vitals, do everything at home that they would have been doing in the hospital. And then the physician evaluation can either be in person with a traveling physician or by telemedicine. That's a great model and, you know, allows the patients to stay at home and and yet still gives them the care they need. And I think my hope is that as value-based care becomes a bigger component of payment models for most patients, my hope is that that will help our older patients and all patients because in theory, this type of care will be more incentivized because as we know, hospitalizations are a major driver of healthcare costs. And so in the value-based care model, the incentives are aligned to build systems, have systems in place like home ho- hospital at home or home PT or you know more intensive case management so that we can potentially reduce 
hospitalizations that could be managed at home. I really look forward to these types of programs increasing over the next decade. And I think this is going to be the way that a lot of these hospitalization visits go. There is no reason that we can't start doing telemetry at home. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a lot of exciting models. And, and I'm sure it will take a little while for the ED mindset and risk assessment that we do on discharge to really evolve. But I think once we have the systems in place, then our risk-benefit analysis completely changes because it's not, oh, I'm going to discharge this patient to home and hopefully they'll survive and hopefully they'll be okay, but I have no way of knowing and no way to treat them at home. Even if I give them a prescription, I don't know that they have transportation to go get it. I don't know that they can understand how to take it at home, whereas if there's a nurse going out twice a day for a couple days, then you know that they're going to be getting their medications as needed. So I'm very excited about this. And I really hope that, you know, in 10 years, we'll be able to look at a lot of patients and say, wow, 10 years ago, back when I was a kid, you know, we would have had to admit you. But now we have these systems in place so that we can safely discharge you home, avoid those iatrogenic infections, avoid complications, avoid hospital uh, acquired delirium and, and all the things that go on with that. Yes, I I certainly hope that it will be as beautiful as the (laughs) image you are planting in my head. But I think right now, even if you're in a place that doesn't have these types of programs yet, there are still some things you can do. I think all of us would agree that when you're sending a patient home and you get on the phone and, and their primary care doctor calls you and you say, hey, can you follow up on X, Y, and Z, or this is what happened during their ED stay, you just feel this weight come off you. You know yes. someone else is there with you. You've got a plan. Or you call their surgeon and say, I think this might be the start of a wound infection. I'm not sure. I'm going to give them a dose of antibiotics here. Can you check on them in the clinic tomorrow? And they say, of course, send them my way. It's just so yes. much nicer. Yeah, that warm handoff physician to physician makes me feel like a real doctor. <laughs> when I can call somebody's PCP and say, hey, I'm sending this patient home. I want to make sure that you're okay with that, that you can follow up with that, that you don't have any qualms or concerns since you've known the patient for 20 years. That's also a great thing. And that becomes much more challenging as our healthcare systems, especially in larger cities, become so huge, so complicated. It's difficult to get in touch with people. You know, they're maybe only in clinic every other Thursday, and then other days they're at different sites. And when that does work out, it's fantastic. Anything else that you wanted to talk about or make sure that people know or tips that you have on this topic? I would just say that if you do not have a family member or caregiver present with a patient, you're going to discharge them home. Make sure that you do some sort of cognitive evaluation to ensure that they're understanding the information you're giving them. If I have someone who says, yes, doc, yes, I'm going to do everything you say, and then I find out that they only have one out of three two-minute recall, how can I be sure that the patient's going to do everything I just asked them to do? Will they even remember to pick up their medications? That's a really good point. And often, you know, these patients who have some cognitive decline there or some lack of executive function, it's hard to tell unless you actually ask them questions because they can compensate frequently very well. They're very polite. They'll be conversational. And then you ask them and they 
say, oh, yeah, I live at home when actually they've lived at a facility for five years. Or they'll talk about their parent and, you know, their parent has been deceased for 20 years or they'll think it's 1994. And so it can actually be easy to miss unless you specifically ask some questions to assess that cognitive function. I had a case when I was a resident that has always stuck with me and I was the senior resident on and a trauma was coming in 10 minutes and I ran to do a discharge of a level four patient who had, I forget what he had, bronchitis or something simple. I had also given him a referral to ENT for chronic sinus issues and I handed him his paperwork and I was feeling really proud of myself for discharging the patient myself and not just hitting the button and telling the nurse to do it. And he said, okay, doc, thank you. Thank you so much. Now, how do I get to that other sinus doctor? And I said, well, you call this number right here on the paperwork. And he said, okay, okay, but how do I get there? I said, well, here's the address right underneath the number. And he said, well, how do I get there from my house? And I said, how did you get here? And he said, I drove myself. And I said, do you mean, do you need a map? And he said, yes, I need a map. And then I need you to write out directions. And I thought, this gentleman has some sort of cognitive impairment. But at the time, I didn't have the skills to assess how severe it was or what was going Mm -hmm. on. And the trauma page went off again. And I said, just take that paper, call that number, and I'll have my case manager call you back and help you more. And so I ducked the the whole conversation when I could have been the one to really identify the cognitive Mm -hmm. impairment, someone who was living alone and struggling Mm -hmm. and gotten him hooked up with other resources. Yeah, that's a great a great example. What do you use to do a quick cognitive assessment? Do you use the mini cog or just a three item recall? I think most of the quick assessments in the ED have the same basic elements. There's an element of orientation, some sort of element of recall, and some sort of element of focus. So I tend to use orientation, a three word recall, and then I ask them if they're better at math or spelling. If they say math, I'll do serial sevens, 100 minus seven, then subtract seven from that and then continue. If they say spelling, I'll ask them to spell the word world or lunch backwards. Mm-hmm. And then what do you do if you do identify a cognitive impairment? If I have a patient with cognitive impairment and I'm worried that it is enough to affect their ability to, to follow their instructions at home and call back or come back to the ED if they have worsening problems, then at that point... I can put them in the observation unit and get my geriatricians involved for further cognitive assessment, see if we can get a hold of some family members or caregivers mm-hmm. to help out. And that's a very good option for someone who may not meet admission criteria. Otherwise, you're stuck yourself trying to call family members or figure out if this is baseline or what support the person mm-hmm. has. Yeah. And that's another thing that it would be great to have more systems in place to figure out when a patient falls into that area where they're not really that sick that they need to come in, but they're not, you're not quite comfortable having them go out on their own managing whatever issue it is they came in for. Um, So there's definitely a lot of room for growth in this area. And I'm glad that you wrote this paper to shine a light on some of the challenges and opportunities. Yeah. Oh, one more question that's really helpful when you're assessing whether a person's going to be safe at home. And I like to ask this one in front of family members so they can see how the person would respond hmm. is what do you do in the house if you smell smoke? Hmm. Mm-hmm. What kind and of responses do you get? I get everything from, well, I would call 911 and then go outside the house to smoke. I don't smoke cigarettes. For that lady, her family was very concerned. I think resolve to get her 24-hour support. 
That's great. Well, Lauren, thank you so much for sharing some of your wisdom and insight and ideas. And I hope that this will be helpful for others who uh, find themselves in similar situations with patients. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.